You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Well, slap my thigh and call me Doris. It's time for another weekend outing. Now, I've got some really hard-hitting interviews and some, frankly, spellbindingly inspirational LGBT people on the show this week. So much to get through. I'm joined by a campaigner who's been working for 25 years to make life better for LGBT people, Monty Moncrief. MBE is his name, and he'll be on to tell us all about the charity London Friend. I'm particularly interested to hear about Antidote, which is the programme they run to help those with alcohol and drug dependency and addiction problems. You'll also be hearing from Natalie Washington, a trans woman and a keen footballer and football fan. She is behind the Football versus Transphobia campaign, so we'll be finding out all about that. But this hour, you're going to be hearing from Matt Mahmood Ogston. He is someone who's been to hell and back because his partner of 13 years took his own life. But what he's done since is remarkable. He's gone on to help so many families who have also struggled to accept their LGBT plus children because of strong religious beliefs. It is a really hard hitting interview. And I must warn you that Matt does, of course, talk about suicide. So you may find parts of the interview triggering. I really urge you to listen through to it if you can, though, because honestly, It's a great example of someone pushing through the darkness and going on to achieve something really quite remarkable. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. Matt, thank you so much for joining me today. I know you're super busy running the Naz and Matt Foundation. So thank you for taking time out to chat to me. Thank you, Emma. It's an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. Well, I touched a little bit then on... um, what it is you do in terms of helping the community I know it's a really difficult story for you to tell but it's an important one and it's why you set up the foundation so take us back I think it's about seven years isn't it and to what happened that led up to you setting up this charity well I'll start briefly in in 2001 um I'd recently came out to myself at the age of 23 um in other words at the age of 23 I finally grew strong enough to be strong enough stronger than the prejudice and the homophobia in the area that I grew up so I finally learned how to well beginning to learn how to accept myself and just a few months after coming out to myself I was on a night out in Birmingham just minding my own business and then along came this sweet delicate voice that said into my ear excuse me May I sit here, please? And in that moment, my, my whole life changed forever because in that moment, Naz had arrived. This beautiful young man, we just got talking and talking and we never stopped talking. Um, but he was from a very religious um, family and he told me this very quickly. And we soon realised that to be ourselves, we, we couldn't live in Birmingham because Naz feared being found out by his, you know, his religious family. You'd so met to... in a gay club, had you? He'd just gone out on the sly away from his family, yeah. Yes, I've met in an after-hours gay club. In um, part of, they had a romantically named cafe within the club called the Naf Caf, <laughs> which <laughs> is where Polari we there. If people know that, <laughs> so we yes, yeah, so we we quickly fell in love. We quickly fell madly, deeply in love. But we just couldn't be ourselves because Naz was always looking over his shoulder. You know, we moved in very quickly uh, soon after that. But you know, we were just fearful of ever being found out by his family, so we had to pretty much run away to London to find new jobs and to set up a new life where we didn't know anyone, where we could just live and be ourselves and just try and live that happy, happy life that we we dreamed of having, where you could just walk down the street together and not fear someone seeing you out together in, in public. And you said it was from a, a deeply religious family. What what religion are we talking? Yeah, so the, the third question he asked me um, 
after meeting him, you know, he said to me, I'm a Muslim, is that going to be a problem? Now, I mean, imagine being asked such a profound question when you mm. just met someone. Yeah. Um, you know, I had to give you some thought. I thought, why would this, why would this young man be asking me this question? Because it didn't matter to me, you know, either way. And I kind of thought about the people that I grew up with and the people that I kind of knew. And I realised that they might have a problem with this. And so I thought I could never see those those individuals ever again. I mean, because how can anyone have a problem with a wonderful man, you know, like Nas? And he asked me up front because he wanted to make sure that wouldn't be a problem in our relationship right from the start. And that's mm. what I absolutely loved about Nas. He, you know, he didn't know... He didn't know how to lie. Uh, you know, he didn't know how to, you know, make up things. You know, he and sometimes that got him into trouble um, in some hilarious <laughs> ways sometimes. But ultimately, he always wanted the truth and he always um, sought to get the truth. And he just wanted honesty, you know, from everyone that he met. Uh, he was just the most beautiful, courageous, brave, uh, happy, uh, funny, just the most incredible person. And everyone that met Naz just fell in love with him because he was just so caring and considerate to everybody else. And in fact, you did move in together and you lived together and had a very happy relationship for many, many years, didn't you? Yes, we did. So we uh, so 10 years after the day that we met in a crowded nightclub in, you know, in London, in front of all of our friends, I did something that I've always wanted to do. And I, I took Naz by the hand to the DJ booth where they lowered the music. Oh, oh. And I turned around and got one. Um, got down on one knee, oh. and I asked Naz to marry me. And the look on his face—it was a complete surprise. And after that surprise, he smiled, and he said yes. And that was the happiest day of my life, and I'll never forget that moment. So there you were, planning to settle down and live happily ever after. But it didn't quite go according to plan, did it? His at this stage, you'd proposed, but his family didn't even know he was gay, and he'd been in a relationship yes. with you for ten years, right? Yes, so so neither of us were out at this point, but but that's especially so because of um, you know what he said to me. He said if if our relationship was ever found out by his family, particularly his parents, they'll be on our doorstep and they'll be praying and they'll be doing anything they can until you know we're no longer um, together and Naz is no longer gay. So even though we proposed and Naz said yes, we we had a very uh, you know. We, we love talking, we love talking about things. So we, we, we talked about getting married and how would we get married? And Naz made a, you know, he, he said, which I completely agreed with him. He said, I wouldn't want to get married until I can invite my mom to the wedding. And it's mm. not about her coming to the wedding. It's just I want to be able to invite her to the wedding because it wouldn't seem right getting married without yeah. even knowing. Yeah. And, but we both knew that for him to tell his mom, that would mean coming out to her. Was there any pressure for him to have an arranged marriage? Because I've spoken to a lot of um, gay Muslims who've had that. One of the things that was really upsetting to Naz, you know, when he went to family events and family occasions, um, and and this is also what happened in, in 2014, you know, he said to me, I'm just absolutely sick and tired of going to a family event and being put under so much pressure to be questioned about you know, why aren't you married? When are you going to get married? You know, what's the matter with you? You know, in fact, that's one of the reasons why, you know, Naz became a doctor and why, you know, we felt it was necessary to, to run away to London is to give us that distance, yeah. that safe distance and a reason why Naz didn't have to face that question of why aren't you getting, you know, why aren't you married? And he just kept saying, I just, I'm just sick and tired of, of being pressured so much to get married from everybody, from all of the relatives, you know, yeah. the aunties, the uncles, just why aren't you married? When are you going to get married? You know, what's what's wrong with you? And to having to 
explain or come up with excuses or reasons just to get people off your back. And he said he, he said to me it was just incredibly exhausting and something that he just he just felt very difficult moving forwards with. And that kind of kind of leads us to 2014, where both of us travelled up to uh, from London to our families in the Midlands. And I went to mine, he went to his, and it was in the middle of Eid. Um, and we got there, we got there late because um, a, a close friend of ours had recently passed away with cancer. So we arrived late because we'd had to go out and find new suits to wear at our friend's funeral. We arrived late and when Naz got there, he had to announce that he, all, he would all also have to leave the, the celebrations early because we had to go to our friend's funeral. Mm. And as he was leaving the family home, and some of what I'm going to say, um, I please need to say a, a trigger warning. Yeah. As he was leaving the house, um, you know, one of his relatives got very upset that he was leaving early in the middle of a family celebration. And part of that was, was caused by Naz refusing to go to a family event because he was sick and tired of being told or asked why isn't he married. A conversation was had, which I am going to miss some details out of, um, but this conversation made Naz break down in tears, which resulted in one of his family members to come running over to him. And he wasn't out to his family. Mm. And one of his family members came, his parents came running over to him and said, you know, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Is it because you like men? Now, anyone in you, Naz, would know that Naz is not the sort of person to cry. He's a very strong, courageous person. He was very brave and he was strong and resilient in himself. But what was said was so difficult for him that he started crying and in that moment when he was asked why are you crying why are you crying is it because you like men for the first time in his life at the age of 34 he was asked directly by one of his parents that question mm. do you like men and because Naz didn't know how to lie because for his whole life he avoided the truth which is a very different thing from having to lie yeah. to someone's face but in that moment he was asked the question and it was always something he'd wanted to do and he had that opportunity to do that thing which is to tell that parent who they really gave birth to and in that moment, he did something which was very brave. And he said, yes, I do like men. I'm in love with Matt. We're engaged to get married. And we, you know, we are planning to get married. And we've been together for 13 years. Wow. 13 years having a secret relationship. That's going to take its toll, isn't it? Yes. And in that declaration of love, I just wish they hadn't responded in the way that they had responded. Because instead of being angry and instead of shouting, they did something which I think was even more hurtful to Naz and in that response they said you need to go to a psychiatrist to be cured to be cured of being gay because they'd heard it on radio programs they'd heard apparently they'd heard radio programs where they could cure people of the, of being gay how terrifying and Naz replied why can't people just accept me for who I am because to Naz who was a very successful much loved GP being told that was essentially telling him that the part of him that he, he felt most proud of, which was his identity, who he really was, he was being told that he was a disease and that part of his identity had to be removed in order to be accepted by the parents that he wanted the unconditional love from. That conversation was left unfinished because Naz had to, to, to come and pick me up so we could go to our friends. Well, he needed you at that point, didn't he, really, more than ever? He did. He did. And on the way to pick me up, he, he called me and he said, look, I'm so sorry, Matt. I'm so sorry. We, we're going to be late for the funeral. I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm late picking you up. And I said, don't worry. Don't worry. I'll make it on time. And he said, I don't know. I need to tell you why I'm late. And I go, OK, you know, why are you late? And he goes, 
I've told them. And I said, told them what? And it was a deep breath. And then Naz just said one word. And all he said was everything. Hmm. And without him saying anything else, I just knew what that meant. And as he arrived a few minutes later to, to come pick me up, I could see that he was visibly shaken and I could see that he was trying to cope and reconcile what happened. Because this is 34 years of bottled up, a bottled up secret that's finally come out in a way that he didn't want it to come out. And we, we, you know, we quickly raced back to London to, to go to our friend's funeral and we talked. And the reason why I know all these details is because Naz and I talked and we talked and we talked. And Naz told multiple friends at the funeral, so I've got their versions of what he's also told them. And this is why I know everything in such great detail, because one of the things that Naz and I loved doing the most was about talking through things. You know, even if it took us two days to talk through an issue, we would talk through it and through it and through it until we got to the bottom of it. And that's what we did. And we talked from every different angle, the good things, the bad things. And Naz was just desperately trying to, to, to make sense of it. And we arrived at our friend's funeral and we mourned the loss of our friend. It was a two-day funeral. The next day we celebrated the life of our friend, which was the first time both of us had ever been to a celebration of someone passing. It was a new concept to us. And it was really beautiful to spend time with friends and you know relatives of our you know our friend who passed away but to celebrate his life we talked as much as we could and then just just by bad coincidence I'd been offered a new job to start the next day and I'd been looking for a new job for a couple of months so I couldn't really pass this opportunity and everything just seemed like we could get through it so we went home and Naz helped me with all the paperwork the night before and then in the morning I asked Naz to wake me up because um, I didn't want to be late for my new job frustratingly he said yes of course I'll, I'll get up with you I'll make sure you don't get late for work and mm. so he spoke to him in the morning he texted me in the morning uh, just to see how the job was going and then he called me about lunchtime and we got through things in life uh, the most difficult things in life uh, you know our sense of humor was to to make fun of the bad things in life because that's how we got through stress and anxiety and we were making jokes with each other and just trying to really just cheer each other up given what had just happened but especially Naz and then Naz said to me excuse me love I've got to go I've got a phone call coming through I'll speak to you later and he put the phone down and that was the last time I spoke to him because I was at my new job I texted him he texted me back I texted him he texted me back telephone ping pong trying to get hold of each other I couldn't always pick up because I was at this new job so we kept missing each other but because we were we could see interaction with each other. That was our way of just getting through the day. And then I kind of lost contact with him in the afternoon for a few hours. But then but around five o'clock, um, I got a call from him. I couldn't pick it up, but I thought that's that's great. Okay, he's calling me. I'll call him back in a short while when I finish work. Then he called me again 10 minutes later. And again, I couldn't pick up. And I thought, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm soon to leave work. I'll call him back soon. And then like 20 minutes went by and then I kind of, um, I think 30 minutes went by and then I thought I need to leave, I need to leave, I need to leave. And then I got a phone call from a mobile number that I didn't recognise. And I thought maybe that's just a recruiter. Maybe that's just someone, you know, I've been looking for a job, so it's completely normal to have these missed calls. Yeah. And in a short while later, I got a text message from my sister saying, call me. And then a, a minute later, another one from her saying, call me now in capitals. So I called her 
my sister, and she starts asking me questions about your work. Where are you? Where's Naz? I said, he's at home. She goes, are you sure? And I said, yeah, of course. He's, he called me like, like half an hour ago or so. He's okay. He's called me. And I started to ask her all these questions. And then my mum came on the phone. And my mum said, please, son, stop asking questions. Just pick up your things. Just pack your bag. Go home. And run. And I don't know why I've been told to run. So I did what she said. I put everything in my bag. I told my boss, my new boss, I said, look, I, I don't know why. I just have to go. And I've been told to run home. So I raced to the tube and now my heart's beating. And I'm thinking, what's happened? What's happened? Because surely if, if a family member's passed away, my mum would have just, she lives in a different city. She would have just told me to go somewhere quiet and just told me somewhere yeah. in a safe way. So I thought, why would I go home? So I'm racing and racing and racing. My heart's beating I got off the tube to where we live and I ran up the hill and now everything's gone into slow motion and my heart is beating, beating. And now everything's gone in slow motion. So I started to push people out of the way on the streets. I mean, which is very, that's not me. But I was pushing people out of the way to get to our place as quick as I could. And as I ran up the hill and I turned the corner to the place that we lived, that's when I saw the police cars, the blue lights, the crowds gathered, people taking photos. As I squeezed past everyone to get to our front door, the police stopped me and said, you can't, you can't go in there. And I said, what do you mean I can't go in there? I live there. And they says, where do you live? And I said, I live on the, I live on the top floor. And I said, you need to come with us. And they took me to the side. As they bundled me into the back of the police car, that's when I glanced across to the pavement. And that's when I saw the red blanket on the floor. And that's when I began to realize that something's happened to Naz, the man that I love. And the police person got into the car and in what seems like an eternity, I desperately hoped they weren't gonna say what I thought they were gonna say. And then they said what I feared the most. And that's when I completely lost it. And I started kicking, screaming, punching the car I just went completely mad because Naz, he was my soulmate and he still is my soulmate. And all of a sudden I've been told that the man that I loved and was going to spend the rest of my life with, the man that made me so happy, he was no longer here. And I had to give the phone numbers to our friends who were in the area, the closest friends to where we lived because the police didn't want me to be on my own. So I gave them my phone and told them who to call. And I don't know what they said to my friends, our friends, but sitting in the back of the police car, I had to look through the windscreen of the police car, seeing taxi after taxi turn up with friends, getting out those taxis and for them to be told what had happened and to watch each one of them drop to their knees as they were told the news was upsetting. And in fact, I don't really have the words to describe seeing one after one of your friends dropping to the floor. It's everybody's worst nightmare, isn't it? And it is a complete trauma. And the fact that it's seven years ago and it's still so raw and you can remember every single second and every single thought that went through your head at the time. It, I feel terrible actually asking you to tell that story again because it's, it's clearly still so raw and still so difficult for, for you to talk about. But... <sighs> The reason we're talking, I guess, is because the worst thing happened. The love of your life did take his own life. 
and you have gone on to do so many things in his honour, in his memory, really to make sure that that never happens to anyone else ever again, haven't you? Yes, um, I mean, thank you. The reason why I still share our story is because I don't want what happened to Naz to happen to anyone else ever again. And I just want to tell you one thing in the two, because I can't, I can't, I can't imagine how to describe the feeling of losing that person that you were, you were going to spend that rest of your life with so suddenly. And the only thing on my mind over the next few days was to follow him, to join him, to be with him. And I had mm. in my mind at the time, the only way that I could join him was to follow him in the same way that he left this earth. And, you know, I went missing for a couple of days. There were police looking for me. I just wanted to join him. And when I eventually did come home, the only thought on my mind was to was was to to join him and follow him and everyone you know my family and our friends who now was in our home protecting me and making sure that I was safe they all knew what was going on in my mind because I had no control over it I was speaking out loud I was speaking riddles but I was saying everything that came into my mind out loud because I couldn't think to myself it was too great a feeling well you're in trauma and you were suicidal yourself you're in shock yeah and I waited and I waited and I waited till the moment arrived where I could follow that. And I'm not going to go into too much detail there, but that moment arrived where it was now dark. And I remember there was no, there was no fear. There was no hesitation. There was no question. It was, it was, I just needed to do it without anyone being able to stop me. And at the point of when I was about to proceed, that's when I heard Nazi's voice it wasn't the small voice that we all have in the back of our head, you know, that nagging voice or that happy voice. It wasn't that voice. It was this loud, commanding voice. And I know it was Nazi's voice because it was in his, in his words, in his accent, his faint Bobby accent. He, was, he said, Matt, darling, I know you're struggling to, to find a reason to stay, but I'm going to give you that reason to stay. Because you always did everything I ever asked of you. If I ask you to do this, I know you're going to do it. And the thing I'm asking you to do is I want you to stay and I want you to set up a foundation or a group or something that's gonna help other people in a situation like ours. And as his voice disappeared into the distance, instead of moving forward with my plan, instead of going this way, I went the other way. and I walked back into our flat, I locked the door I sat on the floor and I just cried and I cried and I cried. And that's where the Nazimat Foundation came from. It came from Nazi's voice that stopped me from taking my own life. And that's why so much of my energy and time goes into the foundation to, to do what Naz asked of me, because that saved my life. And I wanted to help other people too. Gosh, so I hadn't heard that part of the story before. He's it was actually his idea, and he he was he was there to save you in your darkest hour. So, I mean, you do so much work. There's a lot to talk about. But what are some of the main aims that that foundation had when you first set it up? So, I mean, not not coming from a charity background, not having any idea about charities. You know, the most I've been involved in charities to donate to someone's sponsored run or walk. Um, didn't really know what to do so you know the advice I was given you know right at the beginning was um, before we even start to think about what to do the most important thing is to listen 
and then when people start to hear about it they will come to you and they will ask you the things that they need you to help with but the one thing that we did set right at the beginning was was a mission statement and so the mission statement that drives everything that we do is our mission is to never let religion any religion come in between the unconditional love of a parent and their child in other words we 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 work to remove the barriers that prevent some religious and culturally conservative parents from accepting the lgbtqi plus child they gave birth to yes and it's important to mention isn't it that although naz was um muslim and sounds like it was from very strict muslim parents um, it's not just about that particular, it's not just about Islam, it's about all religions, isn't it, that uh, might be intolerant towards LGBT people? Absolutely, that's a really important um, point to make. So our charity um, supports individuals from any religious background, and what we see with the individuals who contact us now for support is there is a commonality, there are common, common aspects to what happens to the experiences of an LGBTQ plus person who come out to their religious family, if they're conservative in their their, their, their attitudes and their beliefs, often the, the impact and the behaviour of the family is very, very similar. So there could be a Christian family, there could be a Hindu family, there could be a Jehovah's Witness family. Whether it's that conservative interpretation within that family, often the reaction from the family is very similar and the impact on LGBTQI plus person is also very similar. So we work across all faiths and uh, religions and we provide that safe listening space where we can support either the LGBT individuals or we can support the, the parents as well. So what sort of stuff have you been doing then? Because, you know, I've looked on your website. I mean, you do stuff in schools. You're looking at conversion therapy. What are some of the, what are some of the practical things that you're doing on the ground to help make life better for people? First and foremost, it's uh, support. We provide, particularly during the pandemic, um, requests and you know, requests for support has gone up uh, a huge amount during the pandemic. Okay. So we support LGBT individuals, LGBTQ plus individuals rather. Some of them are fearing coming out to their family. Some of them have been are out to their family or have been outed to their family. Some of those individuals have been forced to leave their family home. Some of them are about to be forced to leave their family home. Um, and we also support individuals who are fearing for their life and have come to the UK for safety and they're desperately fearing their own family killing them if they get sent back to the country of birth. Good God. And because, how are you supporting them then? So it sounds to me there's a lot more needed than just some therapy or, you know, a helping a kind word at the end of the phone. There's real practical help that these people need in terms of like accommodation and health needs and all sorts, right? Yes, that's right. I mean, first and first of all, I mean, we, we provide a safe listening space where individuals can explore some of their, their, their experiences or their, their fears. But where where it's necessary, we, we, we can and we have provided um, emergency accommodation. We've helped individuals find refuge somewhere within the UK. For the individuals who, who need to claim safety in the UK, those individuals will work with them um, to help support their case by documenting their story. So, you know, the government officials who, who are very keen sometimes to, to send them back to their country of birth, we work to document their story to provide the evidence and the kind of the, the information that's necessary to support that person's um, narrative that's going to help get them secure safety in the UK, which is their sexuality and the, and the very real um, risks to their safety if, if they are forced to leave the UK. And have you had some good success stories in, in that case, Matt? 
Uh, yes, we have. Um, you know, over the years, we've. Um, it's really always very nice to 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 hear from someone who who used our services a while back and has come back to us to to say thanks. Particularly, you know, for our clients who are uh, have got their application for asylum at the moment. Particularly those clients when they they come back to us when they have their successful outcome. I mean, for me, it's um, it's one of the most joyous moments to to hear from someone who we've helped along with other agencies and other individuals to hear from them that they've got safety in the UK and they can now begin to rebuild their life and look forward to a future where they can enjoy and just be themselves. That to me is, is, is really some of the biggest rewards in, you know, in our work is to see someone just have that opportunity of happiness and freedom. Gosh, we take a lot for granted, don't we? Um, and one of the other things that you're working on, and this is something we talked about on this programme actually two or three weeks ago, and that's the campaign to end conversion therapy. How, how are you getting on with that? So myself and the charity, we've been campaigning since 2015 when we found out that at the time the NHS were referring people for conversion therapy. They, they, they stopped in 2015, thankfully. You know, we worked with a number of different individuals to help support um, you know, their campaigns and their media work. But, but more recently, we've joined the Band Conversion Therapy Coalition, um, which is a coalition of different organisations and individuals all working forwards together to give the government what they need to introduce the ban on conversion therapy because it's so damaging any form of conversion therapy it can damage someone for 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 decades if not the rest of their life if someone is forced to go through that conversion therapy i guess one of the most important things you do is support parents so just to remind people as you were talking a little bit earlier one of the the first things that naz's parents said to him when he told them he was gay was there's a cure for this, you know, we'll get you the medicine, you know, had he lived, he may have been forced to go through some sort of conversion therapy. So it's about educating the parents, isn't it? Exactly. That's, that's, that's the core reason why as a charity, we first got involved with this ban for, you know, banning conversion therapy, because if, if Nazi's parents believed that there was a cure for being gay, they also believed it was a disease. And therefore they are misinformed and they don't have the right information. Mm. And therefore their reaction was influenced by a fear, a fear of something they did not understand. So while parents believe there is a cure for being gay, they can also see as being something that's wrong. To be honest, it's a, it's a form of fraud, conversion therapy. So anyone mm. who practices it, it's, it's fraudulent. So while there is still in quotes, a legal form of therapy that can potentially cure someone of being gay, which of course is completely untrue. But while it is something is legally available, then why logically, why can't a parent have that idea in their mind? And that's why we have to ban the conversion therapy to rem- and criminalise it because, because then that will remove or start to remove that idea within parents' minds. And how can, within the UK, how can parents be hearing radio programmes that apparently are curing, in quotes, gay people? So once that conversion therapy ban has come into force, then we have to go after the organisations that are promoting this misinformation and these lies which are damaging families and yeah. taking our loved ones away from us. And can I ask how Naz's parents reacted? I mean, did they ever come round? Did, did you still manage to have a, any sort of relationship with them? Are they finally at a place of acceptance that conversion therapy doesn't work and that actually it was the worst thing to say to their son? It's a, it's a really good question. And all I can say to that is there were months of conversations mm where I was being emotionally blackmailed into behaving and doing certain things. For example, I was emotionally blackmailed into 
promising them that I would not tell anyone that Naz would like that Naz was gay or likes men because it would bring shame upon their family. Yeah. And I and I kept that promise out of respect for them for months and months until it got to a point where there was a public inquest. And without going into detail of that, that's that's when all of the story became public because I was faced with this challenge. Either I continue to do what that family asked of me to keep it a secret, mm. but then Naz will be remembered for this man that uh, in a moment, a very sad, tragic moment, he took his own life, but we don't know why. Or do I tell the truth? and give the newspapers and the TV stations what they wanted for so long, which was the story. By telling the truth, I would be breaking that promise to, to Nazi's family. And by, by speaking the truth, all of a sudden our very private lives, we were very private people, would be, go in the public domain and would no longer be in control of the information around us. But I'm assuming you don't have any regrets about that, do you? Because you have to think about how many people's lives you know you will have saved by having this organisation and by educating parents and school children. Well, that's once said to me, tell the truth and whatever is meant to happen will happen mm. and be comfortable in that fact. And when I, when I share our story, you know, I, I, do, I do my best to try and avoid certain details to, to, to not put too much focus on that, that family. But when I talk about our story... It's no longer really about our story. It's a representation of the hundreds of people who have now come to our charity asking for support because sadly our story is not the only one like this. There are hundreds of individuals who have come to us in very similar stories. But where are their stories? Why aren't they talked about? Why aren't there more charities, you know, and Mm. more, more narratives around this? And that's why we have to keep talking. So when I talk about our story, it's really not our story anymore. It's a story that represents the hundreds of people who've come to us. Yeah, and you would have helped so many people, but so many people will be listening to this thinking, what a fantastic organisation you are. Where can they find out more information and perhaps get support, most importantly? We want all the social, so we want Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, just look up Nazamat Foundation. Our website is nazamatfoundation.org. And if anyone wants to get involved in something that's very, very practical and something that's very imminent, if I may share, share some details about this big event. Ah, yes, of course. There's a very important day coming up on the 30th of July. Is that of which you speak? Yes, that is what <laughs> I speak. So so on the 30th of July every year, so this will be the third year we've run the event. Um, the 30th of July was sadly the day that the world lost Naz. And it's been a very dark day to get through mm. uh, since he passed away. So we wanted to reclaim the day and do something positive because that's, that's what Naz would have wanted. And so we thought, well, you know, as an LGBTQI plus person, one of the hardest things we can ever do is to come out to our parents because we never know how they're going to react. We hope it's good, but it might not be. And we thought, well, where are the role model parents? Why aren't we seeing parents, particularly those from religious or cultural, culturally conservative backgrounds, but any parents really, where are, where are the voices of the proud accepting parents that are proud, so proud of their LGBTQ plus children? So you know, a few of us uh, got together and we came up with this, with this idea that on the 30th of July every year, on the day that Naz passed away, we'd hold an event called Out and Proud Parents Day, Brilliant. which is a public invitation. Um, it's, you know, we share through the hashtag Out and Proud Parents Day. It's a public invitation for parents 
from all around the world uh, and from the UK, from any background, they don't have to be religious or culturally conservative, hmm. but to, to, to get on socials and share photos, messages, and tell the world how proud they are of the child they've given birth to. And to see such a, a huge, amazing, positive response from families, it's probably one of the things that I'm most proud of that the foundation has has done because we we ourselves interview if you're some of the parents um, from different religious backgrounds we share their videos but but really it's about bringing together members of the public to share their stories in a really positive way to celebrate the parents this is the day it's not about the lgbt people it's not about us it's about the parents it's about celebrating parents who are true in themselves or authentic in themselves and genuinely are proud of the kids they gave birth to. That is such a great idea. I'm totally going to get Richard and Jenny Goswell involved in this this year. Is there a sort of physical event as well? Now restrictions should be lifted by the 30th. It's always an online event, so it's COVID safe. Uh, anyone can get involved from any any part of the world. Last year we had you know, parents from North America, India, uh, Scotland, wow. England take part. So please, if anyone's listening to this and want to take part, Go and ask your parents if they're if, if you're out to them and if it's safe for you to speak to them about this, then you know, ask your parents, get a photo with them, or just share their photo, but share their story about their journey towards understanding and accepting you as an LGBTQ plus person. Oh, fantastic. What an absolutely brilliant idea. Well, Matt, thank you so much for chatting to me. And uh, just a reminder, it is NAS and Matsfoundation.org where you can find out even more about the, the work that Matt and all of his um, volunteers have been doing. But yeah, on behalf of everybody, thank you so much for being such an icon and really helping out the LGBT plus community and of course, families and parents. Let's not forget them, right? Thank you, Emma. It's, 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 it's always a pleasure to speak to you. You've been amazing. Thank you. This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Now, if you listen to Matt's interview, I know, I know. It was a really hard listen, wasn't it? Now, I've interviewed Matt several times before, but I think we really went there with this interview. He really went deep and talked about the exact moment that he lost the love of his life when Naz took his own life. We went there so much that I cried doing that interview. So I understand if you found it a hard listen, but hopefully it's given you inspiration as well. And if you do want to get in touch with um, the Naz and Matt Foundation, it is simply that, nazandmattfoundation.org. You'll find them online. Stay with us here on Virgin Radio Pride. Coming up, uh, we're off to the footy. Yeah, well, sort of. Uh, We'll be finding out how the sport can be made more tolerant and more inclusive, particularly when it comes to trans players and fans. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. Let's speak now to Natalie Washington. Natalie, thanks for joining me. Oh, yeah, thank you for having me. Well, this is exciting. Well, I've spoken to Lou Engelfield a few times, and I know very much about the football versus homophobia campaign, about the rainbow laces, but this is a fairly new sort of um, part of the, the campaigning group, isn't it? It is, yeah. So this is kind of the, I suppose... This year was the third year of Football v Transphobia, having a kind of a week in action and and kind of existing as an entity. But as you say, you know, it's kind of very much related to what Football v Homophobia and so on has been doing before. So it's kind of, I suppose, a natural extension of that, if you will. Yeah. So how how come it came about then? Because I would imagine that it was all, you know, part of the same thing, really. Yeah. So it's interesting. So you mentioned Lou and actually that was how we kind of we got started. So if you kind of 
rewind to I think 2016 I think it was I went up to speak at a conference in Glasgow uh, about my experiences as trying to play football as a trans woman I stopped playing football pre-transition and then I wanted to start playing the women's game you know like many I was inspired by the World Cup in Canada and you know England doing quite well there and kind of got got the buzz back so really wanted to get back involved but actually I went and found a club who were very accepting which was wonderful but I couldn't actually play competitive games. And I had about an 18 month wait to try and get permission to play. So through that, I got invited to speak at this conference uh, and and met Lou up there. And we started to kind of work together on some kind of trans inclusion in football stuff together. And then a few years later, and Lou suggested, well, why don't we have a week of action for football be transphobia so that we can focus and zero in on those issues Mm. that are specific to trans people in, in the game. So I'm guessing the experience that you had is is fairly common then for trans people, isn't it? So what, you had to go through some regulatory bodies then to actually get permission to play competitively? Yeah. Yeah, so the so the FA in England have a have a policy for for trans inclusion, um, which details you know, obviously different requirements for people of different genders. So for trans women, typically, as probably you might expect these days, it's a little bit more stringent because people are more concerned, for, if that's the right word, about trans women's participation in sport. Um, so for me, what that looked like in 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 reality was, I had to apply directly to the FA centrally for permission to play in the women's game and that applies at all levels you know from the elite right right down to you know park football so I had to apply and then I had to give them permission to speak to my doctor to get a load of hormone test results basically which then had to come back at below a certain level of testosterone over the course of a year Uh, And actually, initially, I had to make some changes to my medication to to push my testosterone level lower because the the required level is very low. And then I had to wait a year to show test results at that level for a year. So that's that's what took me 18 months. Um, Good God. I don't think people have any idea, do they, that the hoops that you've got to jump through? No, exactly. You know, often this this issue is framed in kind of wider media or in society more generally is kind of how people you hear the phrase oh people wake up in the morning decide they're a woman and want to go and compete in women's sport and of course it recently my example shows it does it really doesn't work like that just There's to get to involved. a gender clinic or actually to get any hormones in the first place exactly. takes yeah years. yeah so exactly you know you can extrapolate from that and for a trans woman it could be could quite easily be five or six years um, before you could could play at any level in the women's game just because of waiting lists so it's not easy. Now, of course, I don't want to put people off by saying that my experience is absolutely ubiquitous because for a lot of people who have transitioned medically already, they probably meet the criteria already. So they can probably apply and get a letter from their doctor that says, actually, yeah, their testosterone level has been below this level for one, two, three, maybe more years. And they'll get that tick in the box and they'll be able to play straight away. So it's not a ubiquitous experience for trans women and for trans men or or non-binary people. You know, their experience is going to be different. The requirements Mm. are different. It might be that depending on their assigned sex at birth and the, 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 the game that they want to play in, it may not matter so much. For me, that was that was the trigger, I guess, that started off the campaign, I guess. Yeah, so there's a very set level then of testosterone, which you either are above it or below it, and that will decide whether you can play the sport that you love or not. Fundamentally, yeah, for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and you know that that plays into my healthcare even now. You know, I have to, I kind of, kind of need to make sure that I'm I'm still maintaining that level. If you're someone who chooses to have surgery, then that that requirement changes. And you know, so for me, I don't have to be tested anymore or anything like that. But still, I could theoretically be challenged. 
I don't know what would happen in that situation. Maybe Gosh. maybe they'd insist on a test. I don't know. Um, and you'd have to walk uh, around with like medical certificates on you all the time, wouldn't you? I used to, um, and I, I didn't actually have to. So what is what is, is a good aspect of the policy is that it's not down to me to prove my permission to play at any... If I, if I go to a game, if someone wants to challenge my justification for being there or my uh, my being there... Mm. they can't really do that on the day they can write to the fa and the fa will write back to them and go this person is fine to play you know they, they don't get to find out because you because you could you know increasingly you see these people which would maybe challenge anyone they'll challenge a cisgender woman because they don't like the look of them you, you see how these things go exactly. um, so i don't have to carry around any paperwork proving that i can play and i've never i've thankfully never been in a situation where someone has challenged challenge me to my face at a football game no i know you're here to talk about football but is it the same in other sports or have they all got slightly different rules um i think it's, it differs from sport to sport um so there's no kind of central rule making entity that couldn't dictate for everything uh, obviously you know in things like the olympics you've got the ioc that will have their own policy but different sports have different rules there are some amazing sports like roller derby where kind of they they'll take people at what they say at their word and that works really well and it's a really inclusive and really quite queer sport it really um, is are, isn't it it's got yeah. to be the queerest sport on the planet hasn't wonderful it, yeah yeah and, and for me i think because it's so often seems to be women-led mm. uh, and the women in that sport are pretty amazing <laughs> and um you know this it's, yeah, you uh, wouldn't it's mess would you i've been to see some uh matches do you call them matches or tournaments i don't even know what they're um, called. i think they images maybe I'm, I'm not sure actually yeah no. good point i'll yes. look that up but you know like, I, I for one would not go to one of these women and tell them that they need to be protected from trans women i think they're quite capable of looking out for themselves <laughs> so, 100 percent. Yeah. i tried it once yeah. my god it's the hardest sport in the world it's ridiculous yeah yeah it's i'm a friend of mine's a, a, an avid player of it and it, it looks yeah. it looks fun but i'm not yeah. sure it's for me i think i might I'm far too old now. You've got to be prepared to get a lot of bruises, let me tell yeah. you. I'm, not, I'm also really not very really good at roller skating, so that probably <laughs> probably rules me out. Oh, God. Well, back to football anyway, because that's what you're on to talk about. Um, I, get, I mean, you're talking very specifically about a governing body and about competing at a certain level, aren't you, really? But I guess one of the hardest bits is um, like in grassroots level, is there is there a lot of transphobia as well? I'm pleased to say, actually, I haven't really seen much. And actually, I've encountered other trans women. And obviously, I'm playing at the women's game. So typically, it's going to be trans women I encounter. I don't tend to encounter other genders so much. Mm. Uh, but I've encountered other trans women playing and um, played against a team not that long ago who had a trans woman who scored in that game, um, which I, I you know, was tempted to say it was an unfair advantage. <laughs> but, <laughs> but Just to really obviously. stir it up. Yeah. Um, I didn't score, so. Um, but yeah, I think I had I've had one or two instances. One in, one instance in particular where I faced I, I would say quite some overt transphobia, which is uh, we played in a, an away game, and this was some years ago now. Played in an away game where I felt like I was I was quite clearly targeted from from the kickoff. Um, so I had someone kind of following me around, kicking my ankles, whether they were trying to wind me up or what, I, I don't know. But you know, pretty much this player was detailed to follow me around and kick me off the ball and and you know all sorts of stuff and, and the referee I, and didn't spot it the referee either didn't a lot an awful lot of it was very much off the ball so the referee would would be quite understandably looking elsewhere but there were a few instances you know i got an elbow in the face at a corner and some of this stuff was very clearly deliberate and and there was there were things said as well which probably should have been picked up on by somebody but it, at the time 
it was thankfully it wasn't one of my first games i'd been playing for a little while it didn't put me off it didn't drive me away i think if i if that had been my first game i don't think i'd have been back um and you know it was physical violence as well as well as the stuff being said which is kind of not really what you want but i'm I'm pleased to say that was once that was once (laughs) yeah i know but did you report it we did um it was a difficult one because it was an away game so we didn't really have any corroborative sources said this was some years ago i think now i would definitely make a point of reporting it but at the time i probably didn't have the confidence i didn't have the feeling that there would be the people that i could speak to that could take it seriously enough to understand what the issue was um you know for example you know they they were obviously deliberately misgendering me from the you know calling me he and him from the first moment now at the time i don't i didn't feel confident there would be someone i could speak to that could understand that that actually mattered the referee i think to be fair to the referee, you know, it sounds strange, but I can understand why the referee struggled to deal with it because he was someone for whom you know, English wasn't his first language. So some of the nuances of language that was being used wouldn't have expected him to pick up on that. And I don't think he could be blamed for that. Some of the physical stuff, yes, he should have dealt with it. Um, so I'm not going to excuse that. But also, you know, all that stuff happening off the ball at that grassroots level, there isn't much a referee can do because he's understandably watching what's going on on the ball. They don't have assistance at that level to be that second or third no. pair of eyes to help them out. So, Well, I hope yeah, that person well, is either not playing anymore or has been educated substantially since that game. I've played against that team since, actually, a couple of times, and nothing like that happened. And, you know, I know another trans woman that's played against them and, had a di- and didn't have that experience. So I'm hoping that maybe that was just that once and that person, you know, or it wasn't just one person, but that those people are no longer involved with the club or that they've mm. thought differently because, you know, this was four years ago. It's not much. I, I would say society has changed, but actually it's probably changed for the worse for trans people since then. But that's another, that's another story. Oh God. Yeah. Hasn't it just, so we heard before Natalie, some of the um, awful experiences that, that you had been through at, at grassroots level in football and been subjected to transphobia on the pitch and people kicking you. I know it was only on one occasion, but is this something that you're hearing from a lot of other trans men and women trying to play the game? Frankly, I don't hear too many that have had a similar experience to what I had in terms of you know that that one game. But I hear from trans women who've had difficulties getting permission to play, uh, similar to what I did. I hear from trans men who are worried about kind of you know approaching their local men's club and whether they're going to be included you know obviously the context is different um so that, that can be quite a worry i hear from non-binary people obviously that aren't clear kind of what you know what sort of club should they go and approach and what you know what sort of league can they play in well of course i haven't even thought like, about that i mean it is very binary isn't it sports it's absolutely men or absolutely. women's sports isn't it you know yeah and um you know often people are are kind of forced to kind of pick one or the other which is which is you know difficult at the youth levels up to age of 18 football can be mixed um it isn't always and leagues don't always work in that way or advertise that but in terms of the fa guidelines all football up to the age of 18 can be mixed so that means mm. that you can have mixed leagues leagues can be degendered and so on so that that's there's a big opportunity there but one of the big things i hear about is trans people who want to go and watch their local team or to watch their kind of elite level team or their national team uh, and they're worried about how they're going to be received in the stadium they're worried about what facilities they're going to have to use if they need to go to the toilet while they're at a game or whatever so that's a big worry and and i see a lot of clubs doing a lot of good work to to make those people feel really welcome Uh, and one of the big I guess, successes or, or big pluses that came out of Football Transphobia's week of action this year was we heard from quite a lot of professional clubs who wanted to showcase that 
trans supporters in their supporters groups do go to games and they are a valued part of the club and that, that was really lovely to see because that's that's one of those areas where people can then make sure that they're still part of their community in the ways that they were before transition and, and that's important for a group of people that experiences a lot of social isolation. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to talk about this and it's very timely that we're talking about this in the wake of um, England's defeat of the Euros last weekend. There are so many isms in football. You know, we, we had the football versus homophobia, but the racism that was displayed in the wake of that defeat was absolutely devastating and gutting. So, you know, I do think that people think of football stadiums as being scary, dangerous places with lots of isms, don't they? So I'm sure there are lots of trans people mm. and LGBT plus people who just are scared to go to these sort of big stadiums full of yeah. quite scary people <laughs> on some occasion. I'm not saying all fans are like that, but there there is an element, isn't there? There is. And, you know, and people people are concerned about that and understandably so because the evidence tells us that these things happen mm. you know people are racially abused every week at football people are homophobically abused every week at football it happens and we have we have to get a lot better and i think part of it comes from a well, part of the solution and a significant part of the solution for me comes from people involved in football or whatever level they're involved with confidently standing up and saying I don't want this to happen around me. I don't want this to happen at my club. I don't want this to happen in the area of influence I have around my seat where I have my mm. season ticket or whatever. I don't want this to happen in the team I coach or whatever. A lot of what we do with football v transphobia is trying to get people to understand actually what are the things that we want people to stop doing or to start doing. And, and often this stuff is framed as, you know, us trying to stop people from saying certain things. And it's not really that per se. I mean, or there are clearly some things we would rather people didn't say, but it's really educating people like the language that they use can make people feel unwelcome and, and actually can, you know, in the case of, you know, the isms, uh, as, as, you, as you quite quite correctly put it, can absolutely drive people away. And so how important is it for people, you know, like when Harry Kane wore the rainbow armband for one of the matches in the Euros? Yeah. Um, and I did spot another player, forgive me, I don't know all their names. I don't care that much about them. Um, was wearing rainbow laces, I noticed, though, in another yep. game. You know, how important is it for things like that to happen? I think it's really important. I think it's really important because particularly young LGBTQ people growing up are seeing this and they're seeing, OK, these these people that I look up to, these international footballers, the, mm. the, the, the captain of their club or whatever, is making a conscious decision to go ahead and wear a, a captain's armband or to wear some rainbow laces that they don't have to do. Oh. But they're choosing to do it because they want to signal that they want football to be a place where that's fine. And that counts for so much. And there was some really great stuff that came out around, um, I can't remember if it was the Rainbow Laces last year or the Football v Homophobia Month of Action in February this year, where uh, Jordan Henderson, who's of course the Liverpool captain, but also you know one of this one of the sort of the senior members of this England squad, not only was wearing the Rainbow Captain's armband and not only was wearing Rainbow Laces, but also he made some really clear statements on social media around how he wanted his club to be a place where LGBT people could be themselves and could feel welcome. And they're part, really a valued part of the, uh, I guess, the kind of the makeup of that club. And that's so, so important for, for young people and, and older people to hear is mm. that my club and the people around my club want me to feel safe and welcomed there. Is there a possibility you can try and get people to wear like the trans flag in laces or armbands? That, that, so there, that are, there are about? 
it's not something we've done, but I have seen some other campaigns uh, and some other people have done similar things. So I think if you search online, you can find uh, trans laces, for example, so the, the, right. the pink, pink, white, and blue flag laces. What we've done is we've we had some trans flag shirts made um, so that we um, a couple of different designs of those that people can kind of wear and, and show um, show their support for the trans community. But also for like for us as well, it's it's a lot is about really just giving a platform to some trans people involved in the game to talk mm. about what they do. Um, so a big facet of the, of the of the campaign this year, again, as well as the sort of getting um, professional clubs to talk about it was how can we get the voices of more trans people out there? So I recorded a couple of podcasts with some different trans people involved in the game. Um, so right. some football writers. So there seems to be a really budding kind of little scene of trans mm. trans and non-binary football writers around. And there's, there's some great people that you can go and read their stuff. So I spoke to them for a podcast. And I also spoke to some players uh, at a club called Charlton Invicta, which is one of the LGBTQ inclusive clubs. Um, and they've got, I think, three, three or four trans players now. Um, Fantastic. So that, and there are really quite a lot theme. of... LGBT inclusive clubs across the country now, aren't there? Which must there make are, things yeah. a bit easier for people. Absolutely, because it's. Um, I'm a strong proponent of the idea that we shouldn't have kind of a separated LGBTQ scene for everything in sport, mm. because I think we need to make sure that that doesn't become the excuse that the rest of sport doesn't have to be inclusive. You know, um, but that's not to say that they don't do a really important role because they do do an absolutely critical role in giving people a a means or an outlet to get into the game maybe for the first time maybe to get back into it there's a league in london called the london unity league and there's also the gay football supporters network league which is a more national uh, affair um, and there's lots of clubs in there you know any city any major city in the in um sort of in england and scotland and i think wales there's uh, there's a club there that you know is specifically set up to be inclusive of lgbt lgbtq identity and that doesn't mean you have to be LGBTQ. There are cisgender and heterosexual people involved in those clubs as well, but they're specifically set up to be inclusive of that. So that's a great way for people to get into the game if they didn't otherwise feel comfortable doing so. Excellent. Now, people listening will probably be thinking, oh, this sounds great. How can I get involved? What's the next step for the for the campaign? And what can people do? Yeah, so for Football v Transphobia, we have a week of action every year, similar to the Football v Homophobia month of action. Uh, but ours is in March, and it's timed to coincide with um, Transgender Day of Visibility, which is at the end yeah. of March. So the week leading up to Trans Day of Visibility, is 31st of March, every year, we'll have a whole load of stuff going on. Now, <laughs> because it's the third year of the campaign, well, this year was the third year of the campaign, next year will be the fourth. Obviously, you know, the sort of um, anyone that's been around for the last two years knows that we've been in a pandemic. So we haven't been able to do that much in the way of kind of no. physical activities. Um, so necessarily we've been quite an online campaign and a social media campaign next year, fingers crossed. I'm hoping that we can do some more kind of physical events and maybe even kind of have a, an exhibition match or something, or one of the things that football be homophobia does really well is getting clubs to designate games as their kind of their their fvh game so that they'll have um a game where people wear t like players wear t-shirts in support of the campaign they'll maybe use a rainbow football and they'll get people to take a pledge around you know how they're going to be more inclusive of, of uh, lgbt people mm. so we'd like to do something more along those lines when we could actually have physical matches that people can go to <laughs> um so that will be something for next year so keep an eye on 
all of the social media, which is if you find football v homophobia, you'll find football v transphobia. We're in, we're in all the same places, uh, and they can find out how to get involved there. But you know, for any trans people listening that might want to be involved in the game, then then look us up, get in touch with me. I've got a bit of a network for trans people in sport anyway, so we can we can try and help you get involved. And in fact, that was a couple of my biggest highlights of this year was speaking to a couple of trans people during the week who then went to their local club, yes. trained with them, and started playing. And that's ultimately. Yeah what it's all about is getting people active well finally what advice would you give to someone listening that that is trans or non-binary and really wants to get back involved in football or sports and it's just a bit scared really just because of you know some of the stuff we've talked about yeah uh, and understandably so not i was there you know i was i was worried i i I transitioned thinking that was it for football for me but but what i'd say is reach out there's tons of us actually really is loads of us involved in football at various different levels and whatever you're doing, whether you're playing, refereeing, coaching, watching, there's going to be some people who are there who've already done it and can help you out. So get in touch with us and, and don't be scared. You know, there are LGBT supporters clubs, LGBT football clubs that will make you welcome. uh, And you won't be, you won't be the only trans person there more than likely. Um, So, you know, get involved, um, reach out to them. Uh, make that first step if you can and throw yourself in and for me I found it really rewarding like the big thing for me with sport is the social interaction you get from it um, and the mental well-being and I think that everyone deserves to have access to that and everyone should have access to that and hopefully if we you know continue to progress everyone will have access to that so fingers crossed eh? absolutely and finally very important question because i have been internet stalking you um where did you get your wonderful trainers with the trans flag on the bottom oh the uh, the converse ones oh is that um, converse so, right, okay. yeah, that's yeah. a bit of an advert for them isn't it, it but... is a bit yeah various manufacturers do it but they did a, um, a pride campaign i think last year and they did yeah. lots of different ones they did some different ones this year so thankfully these days uh, as we can t- we can talk about brands of pride all day but you know there's some quite cool stuff that you can get these days there's a lot of uh, pride related merchandise around if that's that's your bag (laughs) well natalie long may you um parade around in your amazing trans trainers and kick a ball around and uh live your best life thanks very much thanks for having me on you are listening to the virgin radio pridecast big thank you to natalie washington if you missed it where were you yeah we were just checking out football v transphobia check them out on all the socials And uh, it was nice to talk about sport for a change, actually. I might stick with the sporting theme in uh, a future show because I can't believe it. The Olympics is coming up. It's going to be weird, isn't it, with no spectators? But, um, yeah, I might start looking into LGBT athletes who are going to be representing us. Uh, Yeah, who cares what country they're from um, in some future shows. Now, next hour, I'll be chatting to the LGBT legend that is Monty Moncrief. Uh, Not just about his Eurovision podcast. Yes, he does have one. um, But about the brilliant London... London Friend, the LGBT charity that he heads up. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. I am thrilled to be joined by none other than Monty Moncrief, NBE, no less, from London Friend. Hi, Monty. Can I just first of all congratulate you on your microphone? You possibly have the best microphone out of anyone that I've interviewed for the show so far. <laughs> Fantastic. What an accolade. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> it doesn't look like you're about to sing me a song and you're in the 1920s, but... Um... It does feel as though it's kind of got that sort of early century feel about it, doesn't it? I feel as though I should be on a radio with a bit of crackle in the background. Yeah, and... <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, I want to find out all about London Friend in a bit for, for those people who don't know about the incredible charity and all the work that you do. But, I mean, you've basically been fighting for LGBT people's rights and really looking after the well-being and the mental health of LGBT people for about 20 years, haven't you? Where did it all start for you? Yeah, 25 now, actually. Yeah, um, yeah I've, I'm, I'm maybe what's becoming known as a, an elder in the community. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I've always been interested in, in working in the LGBT sector and LGBT equality and rights has always been a passion for me. Mm. I got involved by volunteering at Switchboard, the LGBT helpline in London in 1996. And I, I'd rang a couple of times and I'd found the service to be really helpful. And I felt I wanted to give something back. So I started volunteering and it just opened up a whole new world to me. You know, I met a really diverse range of people who were volunteers. I got to experience and build skills in lots more areas. Um, and it was a real springboard for working in the sector today. So what was it like working on the switchboard, though? Because it must be a really hard job. You must speak to people who are, you know, in the pits of despair, really, and they're ringing because it's, you know, they feel like they haven't got anyone else to talk to, right? Yeah, you can. But there's also the privilege of speaking to people who are coming out for the first time. And, you mm. know, you're the first person that they've they've told. And also mm. the fact that you're speaking very frontline to somebody, you know, you're talking about very personal issues. And they're sharing that with you in the hope that you can, you know, be there to listen, perhaps give some pointers, some new perspectives on things. So it was always interesting when you got those kind of really chunky calls and you would get the opportunity to spend you know an hour or maybe more um talking about somebody's life circumstances with them it was very i mean rewarding always sounds a little bit cliched in in, mm. in this sector i think it was i i prefer to see it as a privilege really to mm. to be able to be there and the person that they were trusting and i guess it was a lifeline for you as well so you rang them because you were feeling isolated and, and confused i guess Absolutely, yeah. I rang them for um, a very specific issue in the middle of the night when I just didn't really quite know how to to deal with it. Um, mm. And again, I, I rang them for um, another time just for some information. And it was fantastic both times. You know, the different the different aspects of the service that they provided. You know, they were just so brilliant when I needed to to speak. And I just thought I I want to try and do something. And it seemed like a really a good way in I think you know volunteering is a is a brilliant way to get involved in you know something you're passionate about um certainly at London Friends you know we we have around 100 volunteers who support the work of our charity and the the charity was originally set up back in the early 70s by LGBT people coming together to provide the support that was needed in their communities when it wasn't there from anywhere else Gosh, I wish I'd known about it then. If it's been around since the 70s, I remember in the 80s living in Peckham and feeling really isolated and I was in the closet and I didn't know what was going on. And I rang the Samaritans and they never answered. And I always felt that was a really oh, no. sad low point in my life, really. I thought if I'd known about London Friend then, that would have been amazing for me, I guess. And, and was the switchboard then in the, in the 80s? Yeah, Switchboard started in 74 yeah. um, in London and uh, London Friend, we started in 72. So we're coming up to our 50th anniversary next year. 
which is an enormous milestone for us. Well, I was obviously that closeted. I didn't even know what the right numbers were to ring or who to get hold of. But uh, it sounds like it's done incredibly well, though, the charity. You've just helped so many people over the years. What is it, though, about particularly mental health and well-being that is, why is it that particular aspect that you've always focused on throughout your career? I think it feels like that's where the need is within our communities. Mm. I mean, we know from the, the the data that we have that, you know, common mental health issues like anxiety and stress are, are much more prevalent within LGBT populations. Um, but also it's more difficult for people to access some of the support that's there. You know, our, our happiness depends on this and our, our health and well-being flourishes from that, whether that's through, you know, social connection with meeting other people who are in similar circumstances to you, um, other LGBT people, you know, and people find meeting through some of our social or support groups perhaps easier or less daunting than going into the bars and clubs. But as well as, you know, we're providing more structured support through counselling or drug and alcohol um, support, sexual health support as well. So really, you know, a whole range of services which are looking to support the health and well-being of people. Yeah. And in, in 2002, you started Antidote, which is a great name, by the way. But tell us um, a little bit about um, what it does and why, why you wanted to set that up. Yeah. So I was working for a charity called Turning Point, a national charity oh. that works in um, substance misuse and also um, learning disabilities, mental health as well. Um, and we had a little bit of a, an LGBT project um, happening, uh, supporting people. We wanted to expand that. Um, The service had been called Project LSD in the 90s. Um, And although it was LSD, it stood for Literature and Services on Drugs. It wasn't just about the the drug LSD. The service had been going out and doing some outreach promotion in clubs of, you know, harm reduction information for people who might be uh, using drugs and alcohol on the scene. But what we found is that there was a a need for more structured support so we set up the antidote service to provide one-to-one practical support around managing drug or alcohol issues as well as counseling and group work program and somewhere that people could come that was an antidote to what they were experiencing on the scene with their problems but also a bit of an antidote to the mainstream services as well you know we were providing services in a way that understood the needs of their those communities understood the context in which you know those problems of drug or alcohol were happening um and so i think people had greater trust in that service they had greater confidence that we would understand their needs and be able to be culturally um, appropriate for them yeah i mean it's if somebody's caught up in the chemsex scene they're not going to go to their gp and assume that their gp is going to be understanding or know what their you know what their lifestyle's like or what they've been experiencing what they've been going through or offer the, the right sort of help will they so i guess it's crucial what you what you guys are offering Absolutely. And if you're talking about, you know, issues that are related to your identity and your sexual behaviour, you know, it's quite sensitive information. It's quite, um, you know, you need to feel trusting. You need to feel as though that service is really understanding you. So that's that's a lot of what we try to cultivate um, through the Antidote Service and through London Friend in general, you know, that we, we understand 
how people are living their lives. We understand, you know, how things that are going on for them are, are contributing to the problems that they feel. Because it's really important that people feel really open uh, and trusting and honest, because if you can't speak very honestly about what's going on, you're not really going to get to, to the root of the problem. I remember when I first started working in this, in the drug and alcohol field, speaking to somebody who'd been off for three months in a residential rehab, and they hadn't disclosed that they were gay. And their drug use was very much connected with how they felt about their identity and the, the complexities mm. of that. And they, I said, well, why didn't you tell them? So, well, they never asked me. Uh, and so I never felt as though I had I was able to do that. And it just shocked me that, you know, somebody's doing three months worth of intensive therapy and they haven't got, they haven't opened up about what the actual root of the issue is. And probably and, spending a fortune as well, by the way. But I mean, it, do, it begs the question how deep that therapy was then, if that's something that wasn't even brought up or discussed. I mean, you're right. It's fundamental exactly. to, to our existence, isn't it? Our, mm-hmm. Who who we are? So not, to be not discussing something as important as that just seems yeah. crazy. Yeah. So it just it was a, a an eye opener for me of the importance of you know when somebody comes to your service, you need to be asking them these questions. You need to be finding out you know whether um, their their sexual orientation or their gender identity or any other aspect of them mm-hmm. has any relevance to the work you need to do and what the what the connection is. It may be nothing at all, but it may be really crucial to understanding you know what the issues are for that person, but they need to feel that they can trust the service when they come in, they need to feel actually it is all right to do that. And we do that by, you know, making sure that, um, you know, LGBT issues are on posters or leaflets in waiting rooms in services, that it's in assessments, it's talked about, you know, in a very matter of fact way, in, in a way that's really relevant to the assessment that you're doing with that person. So that person has confidence it's all right to disclose here. And is the drug and alcohol thing something that you see as stagnant, or do you think it's getting worse in our community? Do you see do you see cases rising? Has it has it got worse during the pandemic? Do you think people it, have been a bit more cut off and isolated and yeah, in a bad place? Yeah. I mean, it's it's always difficult to say because we have such poor data on drug and alcohol use within LGBT communities. And I think the last year has really, you know, thrown a lot of what we knew up into the air. Um, certainly we had, in terms of the people coming to us for support, we had a much, much higher level of people saying they felt at risk of relapsing from their drug and alcohol goals. And actually quite a lot of people who did in the, the early stages of lockdown. Um, I think it was, you know, th- there was lots of talk in society about how you know people were drinking more because they were at home more and they didn't have to get up quite as early the next morning um and i think the 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 issues there were there for drugs as well what certainly has happened though is i think things have become more complex i mean when we're talking to people now it feels as though the issues they're bringing are much more complex i think particularly related to chemsex and i think that's partially to do with the drugs i mean crystal methamphetamine which is by far now the most common drug that we see um, in chemsex it's a really really strong stimulant and you know there are significant mental health risks with it 
And I think it's tied up in really complex issues of, you know, people's identity, how they feel about themselves, how self-confident they are, how much self-esteem they have, um, as well as the kind of, you know, if it's starting to have problems with other areas of their life, like their relationships or their, their work or financial. I think the, the work that we're seeing is much, much more complex. But we're also dealing with trauma that people have experienced, not just, you know, we've always, always dealt with kind of early life trauma. Um, but now we're dealing with trauma that people have experienced within a chemsex setting. You know, maybe, you know, they've they've passed out on G and, you know, they feel they've, you know, been sexually assaulted or, you know, there's there's other crime that's happening in those contexts. You know, people being robbed, being blackmailed, being filmed without their consent. Mm-hmm. So we're dealing with some of the, you know, the, the trauma that's associated with what's meant to be a pleasurable experience. And that's really difficult. It's certainly it's made it much more complicated. And I think with crystal meth, it's a it's a much harder drug to to quit. People need to be really committed. And, you know, it's it's draining on on people who are supporting them as well. Gosh, I mean, there are chemsex scenes around the country, aren't there, really? But I think London is definitely it is more of an issue in London and Manchester, probably than a lot of other places. Would you agree? Certainly, I mean, there's a there's a prevalence in London. I think the data we have certainly shows that there's more prevalence in bigger cities. So we know it is there in, in the other cities as well. I think, I mean, I think we've also got to remember, I mean, you know, people have, you know, taken substances to get off their face whilst having sex for, you know, a long, long time. You know, in a sense, this isn't new. But I think what's new about the chemsex scene in terms of how it relates to game by men is it's very marked by, you know, the advent of, you know, things like apps. So it's much easier to meet other people. But also, you know, the drugs that people started to use in this scene are drugs that we've already really seen used for, you know, little over. A decade so I think there are there are new problems that are associated with those drugs and with the the way that people can meet so I think whilst you know this has been going on for a long time there's something relatively new about chemsex and the specifics of it and how does antidote help people what sort of practical help are you you offering it's not just counseling is it no, we um, we help people to look at what their goals are, first of all, you know, do you want to stop completely? Or do you want to feel that, you know, you want to get more control? You know, you may feel that, you know, actually, I want to have a little blowout once every quarter or so once every few months but I want it to be on a Friday night I don't want it to be you know going into the whole weekend don't want it to be like running into Monday morning so we help them to you know to put control around that but actually the vast majority of people who come to us do want to stop I think they've got to that point where you know things have got so difficult so we'll work out what people's goals are and we'll work out what they need to do to enact those goals and then where the support is going to come from and you know part of that will come from us helping them to develop strategies for dealing with situations when they might be tempted to use or when they're offered something to to, to plan ahead for those um, uh, circumstances. But also it's, you know, around kind of the other support that they put into their lives as well, you know, support of family and friends, maybe repairing some relationships that have been damaged whilst they've been using, um, but also by getting out there and, you know, enjoying activities that are kind of, you know, real life 
um, activities, mm. the real life chemistry of, you know, interacting with people, whether it's sports or leisure or, you know, something Also cultural. important, isn't it? And have you seen absolutely. some real, real good success stories, Monty? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people are, um, when people are really committed to making that change, you know, they will make it and they will sustain it. Um, and I think, you know, it's so nice to see people making those positive changes when they felt, you know, absolutely despairing at some points when they're, they're coming in at, you know, the lowest ebb. I think the thing with, um, with drug and alcohol use is sometimes it really does have to get to that, you know, bit where there's there's something which is a, a tipping point. We're going, right, I really need to, to sort this out now. And, you know, sadly, that can be, you know, things like an HIV diagnosis, or it can be losing your job or losing your relationship. So, you know, we always encourage people to come in and speak to us as early as possible. You know, if you think things are becoming a little bit of, a, of an issue for you, come in and have a chat with a professional, um, you know, before that happens, because we can, you know, help you try and get back on track. You know, but unfortunately for a lot of people, it, it is, you know, at that very late stage, you know, where things have really started to fall apart. Right, Monty, and uh, there's so much we could talk about. Honestly, there really is, isn't there? But I want to find out a bit more about the rest of London, Fred, and all the other services that you provide and how you can help people in London. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. I'm chatting to Monty Moncrief, MBE, nonetheless, uh, from London Friend. Monty, do you um do you get upset if people introduce you and don't use your MBE at the end, or you you're not really uh, not one of oh, them? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, it's um it's a strange thing. I mean, it was lovely to get, um, particularly for our services to LGBT equality, and that was one of the 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 big factors in why I chose to accept it because yeah. I think you know it, it would have been unheard of for people to get it for LGBT equality not that long ago in our sector mm. so I think it was really important to to accept for that um no no not at all it's um <laughs> it's a, I have it on my professional um Twitter and uh work email but I don't use it in everyday life by any no. stretch you won't expect <laughs> us to curtsy or anything then no. well you maybe a bit of genuflection know your place <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, no, it is a fantastic accolade, though, isn't it? But what, what's the thing out of your career of, like, as you said, 25 years of fighting for LGBT equality and helping people have better lives for LGBT plus? Uh, what's the one thing that you're most proud of, do you think, out, out of your career? Oh, gosh, what a question. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think I'm most proud of the things that the people who use our services achieve for themselves mm-hmm. you know I think um you know we're if, if you like our, our services a bit of a framework to help people think through you know where they are and what they want to do next we do make some suggestions we give people tips we give tools to be able to do that but really it's about the difference that people make for themselves so I think maybe that proud of being able to put that framework in place but I'm much more prouder, much more prouder, much more proud mm-hmm. of the work that people do to improve their own lives. Yeah, you must see some people really turn their lives around and go on to do incredible things, right? Absolutely. And, you know, we've got people who are volunteering and working for us who, you know, gone through lived experience of uh, some of the issues that we support. Um, yes. And it's fantastic to see people making that progress. Yeah. Well, let's talk about London Friend then, because, I mean, it's described as a um, LGBT mental health and well-being charity. But um, I guess there is so much that you do, isn't there, really? But just just sort of sum up the charity for people that haven't heard of it. What sort of stuff do you do? 
Yeah, sure. We do do a lot. We, um, I think we we are there to improve the health and well-being of LGBT people. So we do it mainly by direct services. Um, I guess we group our services into three. The drug and alcohol service, which we've already spoken about. Yeah. Um, we have our counselling service, uh, which is an opportunity for people to look in a more structured way and talk about an issue that's going on for them and think about, you know, where they want to, to go with that. Um, so we have, you know, a, a 12-week counselling counseling program and also a specialist domestic abuse counseling program for people who've been affected by that and then we have our groups uh, group work program so we have an, a, a whole range of informal and more structured support and social groups um, you know coming out groups trans and non-binary group activity groups like creative writing um, and really what we're trying to do oh, yes is called pink ink I thought pink that was a great name yes <laughs> someone thought long and hard about that didn't they <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so what we're trying to do really with those groups is improve people's well-being by social contact. You know, the the fact that they can come and meet other people in similar circumstances um, or come to a space which is about socialising without the pressures of the, the commercial scene, you know, and build confidence and build connection. And just, you know, the, that interaction with people is so important. It really is. And, and that's the trouble that's happened over the years is that gay people traditionally have always met in bars and clubs and it's all about the alcohol and the partying mm-hmm. and actually there aren't those sort of safe spaces they're, they're, they're sort of few and far between aren't they where you can meet people in a sober environment and actually talk to them properly yeah, yeah and I remember when I volunteered at switchboard you know if we took a coming out call you could guarantee that at some point in that call the person would go well where's my local gay bar because mm. that was the first place that people thought of to go and meet other people and actually you know there was often loads of local you know support groups activity groups things going on I remember you know it was before the internet and we would read the the listings in the back of Gay Times and Diva to try and find you know suitable referrals or suggestions for people and the diversity of things that were available you know daytime dykes for women who wanted to be um in the the during the daytime uh gay Doctor Who fans you know caravanners bird watchers you know and all you know all sports whichever kind of sport you can you can think of you know some way of, of being involved in, and and playing that as well as kind of you know religious and faith groups and th- there was so much going on out there but I think you know people didn't always find the or have the means of navigating that if they didn't have any contact into the community you know so publications outside of it it feels like a bit of a secret world doesn't it I think it does I think yeah and I think you know it is very nerve-wracking when you go to an LGBT space for the first time, whether that's a support group or whether that's a, a bar, you know, it's it's quite nerve wracking for people. I mean, you know, everybody's got this story about kind of, you know, the first time they went in, you know, we hear people all the time coming in. So oh, I walked past on so many occasions and yeah. didn't quite have the courage to, to, to walk in. I mean, anything we can do to break down the barrier of that and the, the threshold. I mean, we have you know, quite low threshold services anyway. You can under normal circumstances, generally walk into a lot of our our services. You can refer on the day uh, when the service is running. Um, that's been a little tricky over the past year. We've had to run everything online. Um, so it's, so all, it's a, all um Zoom meetings, I'm guessing, has it been over the last yeah, 18 months? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Zoom's Zoom and other platforms have been brilliant for us in, in terms of you know being able to connect and the opportunities it gives us also to have, you know, to take somebody into like a breakout room and have a private conversation with them as well. It's you 
you know, it's 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 kind of emulated the way that we would work if somebody's coming into the service, we'd be able to go off and have a private conversation with them for, for the first time, or they, you know, they want to talk about something specific. So the technology has allowed us to do that. Um, but you know, we we've all got a bit of Zoom fatigue now. We're doing wait. this interview on Zoom. I, my life has just spent in my back bedroom doing Zoom meetings and Zoom interviews, but yeah. But I, no, we've done, I, you know, we've had professional meetings, we've had our social <laughs> lives on Zoom. Everything's been, yeah. been been online and it's been great to connect, but you know, we can't wait to get out and you know do some face-to-face work and you know bring that, back. Will that services. happen after the 19th, then do you think? That- yeah, we are uh, we're actually doing a series of um events over this uh, over July and August in September mm. called our summer camp. So we've got a weekly um activity, you know, looking at something which is engaging, something which is uh, looking to connect people, improve health and well-being. So we've got a number of things on there. The first one's been announced and it's a, um, it's a comedy workshop that we're running next week. Um, we've hired bigger space um, to be able to do this so we can bring people together, even under the current guidelines now, but w- with the space to, you know, So to, this is actually in person? That. Yes. Yeah, oh, well, first, people have been ripping your person, arm off to go to that, won't they? Hopefully so, yeah. Our first in-person services for 15 months, 16 months, wow. I think. So we were really pleased about being able to bring those back. And then as we, you know, as, as we find out what's, you know, happening with, with reopening and the social distancing requirements, we'll be moving back into our building. Um, our building is it's more social than it is distant. It's quite hmm. bijou and compact. So it's got really nice feel to it, but we can't, if social distancing is there, we can't get many people into it at the same time. So um, this, um, these larger spaces allow us to do that. Well, I, I did see this on your website, actually, and I thought, what a fantastic event. So it's a comedy and joke writing workshop, right? Yes, yeah, with uh, somebody who's on our volunteer team, um, actually ran a, sort of a boot camp, a comedy boot camp uh, mm. for us a, a year or so ago, um, where we got a group of women and we um, we worked with them to sort of develop their stand-up skills, and then they they put on a show in a, in, in a local venue. Um, it was great, so we're wow. really excited to be working with Karis again. God, you've got um, to be brave to, to do this. that, haven't you? But, I mean, absolutely. But it's you know, if anything's going to test your confidence and mm. you know boost you, you know. If you stood up there and you've got a great reaction back from people i mean what a confidence boost that is well, you know proves you can do do lots of things if you manage to do that yeah exactly but why did you choose that as your first like big event then well i mean we've got a series of things so it just happens mm. to be that's the first one um okay. to be honest so you know everybody loves to laugh and you know what better way of bringing people back together with the space where promoting comedy and laughing together well, exactly, because when you talk about sort of well-being and mental health, it also, you know, it can sound a bit scary and a bit worthy, but actually you're just having a laugh, aren't you? And that's improving exactly. people's well-being tenfold, surely. Yeah, yeah, having a laugh, being positive, you know, doing something nice together, mm-hmm. you know, doing something fun together. That's that's what well-being is about. Yeah. So your service is available to, to everybody or is it, is it very much just people who are living in London? Is that... Well, um, our face-to-face services run from London, so obviously yeah. it's for people who are in London or, or, or surround. Um, we are hoping to be able to expand some of our online services. We're talking about how that how online provision fits with um, um, face-to-face as we go back. So I think online has been really beneficial for many people, not for everybody. It's not been accessible to everybody, but we've had 
some better engagement actually online. You know, people have missed fewer appointments online. Um, you know, maybe that's because they've all been stuck at home with nothing else to do. Yeah, I've got but, the excuse when the bus is late, have you? <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I think we, we want to, to have a, a mix of, you know, whatever is the easiest thing for, for people to access. So we're hoping that, you know, that will um, extend into a bit of uh, broader provision. Um, but yeah, generally London-based at the moment, but open to everybody who self-identifies as LGBT, non-binary, queer, whatever you want to, to identify yourself as, uh, you're welcome with us. Fantastic. And just remind is the website the best way for people to get involved and get in touch? Yeah, the website londonfriend.org.uk. Also, we're quite active on Twitter at LGBT Friend, uh, our Facebook page, London Friend, and London Friend LGBT on Instagram as well. Fantastic. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful speaking to you. Thank you so much, Monty. Um, but before you go, I can't leave without um, letting you have a plug for your own podcast as well, because um, <laughs> you're not just about the LGBT activism, are you? You've also got a secret passion. Go on. Yeah, not so secret, I think, but I'm a I'm a passionate Eurovision fan, mildly obsessed with the Eurovision Song Contest. My podcast is nothing to do with LGBT health uh, whatsoever, other than it's a couple of queers who have a laugh while we're doing it. Yeah. Um, but that would improve uh, my mental health, listening to that, <laughs> I think. It's called Second Cherry, almost a Eurovision podcast. Um, podcasts are meant to be niche, uh, and this one really is. We celebrate the songs that tried in their own national competitions to get to Eurovision but failed uh, because we know there are some good songs that don't make it. We celebrate them and we pick one from each country to put into a competition, a second chance competition that our listeners vote on at the end of the, the series. Okay. We also do it as a live event as well. So hopefully two years ago, we were in the Royal Vauxhall Tavern uh, with a club night called Eurofest and hopefully we'll be back with them again later in the autumn. Oh, my God, that sounds so much fun. Go on, then. What is your favourite um, Eurovision song that none of us will have heard of? <laughs> it's Norway 1966, called Inte und der by I can tell you've said that a few times, Monty. Oh, my God. Very, I'm very niche. I'm going to have to look that up now, aren't I, really, just to see how, how good it really is. It's oh. obscure even within Eurovision circles, so... <laughs> <laughs> A big thank you to my guest, Monty Moncrief, MBE. I keep saying MBE like he's going to shout at me if I don't say it. He doesn't care. Anyway, thanks to Monty. Uh, if you want to find out more about their charity, londonfriend.org.uk is where you need to go online. So much going on over the summer. Totally want to sign up for that joke writing comedy workshop. Lord knows I could do with it. Right, time for me, Emma Goswell, to sign off. That's the end of another weekend outing. I know, I can't believe it either. And I can't believe that it is going to be so-called Freedom Day tomorrow. Hey, listen, if you're anxious about it, don't worry. If you want to keep wearing your mask, do it. Be safe, protect yourself and others. Let's not get too overexcited, shall we, uh, before it's all really over. Having said that, if you are planning a trip to a nightclub, have a good one. And wash your hands lots. Hey, see you next week.